Hi, it's Alyssa Milano, and I'm so excited for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's my unapologetic examination of life, culture, and activism, and it's available for pre-order now, everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Hi, and welcome to Alyssa Milano's Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Ben Jackson. Normally, I'm the behind-the-scenes producer for the podcast, but today I'm switching roles because we have a very special guest with us for the show, our very own Alyssa Milano. Now, I know Alyssa as the best friend anyone could ever ask for. You know her as an activist, actor, mother, writer, and producer, and once again, we can add author to that list. Her new book, Sorry Not Sorry, releases on October 26th. Now to the Me Too movement growing this morning in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Millions of women sharing their own stories online, saying sexual harassment and assault isn't just a problem for Hollywood. My name is Alyssa Milano, and I am here because women are not guaranteed equal justice under the law of our Constitution. I think that Dr. Ford is an incredibly uh, compelling, intelligent woman and uh, made women everywhere proud for her strength and, and courage in coming forward. Senator Ted Cruz and actress Alyssa Milano sat down for a debate on gun control. They were joined by fathers of gun violence victims at the senator's office after a tense back and forth between the actress and the lawmaker on Twitter. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and I am unapologetic about my fucked upness. Sorry, not sorry. Okay, well, Alyssa Milano, thank you for being part of the podcast. We are going to talk about your book, but before we get there, let's talk about a cause that I know is very important to you, which is the Equal Rights Amendment. And you were just last week in Washington to testify and work on behalf of the amendment. Tell us why it's so important to you. Because women don't have equal protections in the Constitution. And people are shocked when I say that because they believe that those protections should be there. And in order for us to be able to achieve and get full equality, we need the the protections of the Constitution and not have the whim of whatever political party is in office to dictate our freedom, our equality, our humanity, our dignity. The ERA has already past all of the number of states it needs to be in the Constitution. Why isn't it in the Constitution? Why isn't it there? Okay, so Alice Paul wrote the ERA in 1920. It took until 1972 to actually for it to pass. It passed, but with this arbitrary deadline, which, by the way, no other amendment has had a deadline. So, of course, why make it easy for women? So when You look at 1972, it passed. It had to be ratified by 38 states. The arbitrary deadline was actually extended to make it a 10-year deadline. So in 1982, 
we were three states short of the 38 states needed to amend the Constitution. And after Trump got elected, this incredible black queer state senator from Nevada decided that she was going to rally the Nevada state senators to pass the Equal Rights Amendment and to ratify. So after Trump was elected in 2017, Nevada ratified and that sparked Illinois to then ratify, which then sparked Virginia to ratify. So we now have the 38 states needed to get the amendment in the Constitution. What we do not have is any sort of bill or legislation to lift the arbitrary deadline. There is a bipartisan bill that Senator Cardin and Murkowski are both co-sponsors on that would do just that. But we are in the process of figuring out what that next step is, whether it be whipping votes or a, a test vote in November to see where we are with that. But, you know, I'd like my daughter to know that she, in the founding document of the United States of America, she has as much power and protection as my son. And I want my son to know that my daughter has as much protection. They say that the ERA is just a symbol. I say that is important, that those symbols are important. That's why when you're married, you wear a wedding band. And Section 2 of the ERA, which doesn't get spoken about as much, allows for legislation on Section 1 of the ERA, which says that, that no one can discriminate on the basis of sex, which legal scholars also have deemed to mean gender. So the trans rights will be protected. It's just a really, it's way past time. And it's something that we need to continue to fight on, by the way. And I'm not, this is not obviously the first generation of activists, of feminists that have fought for this. It's been a long time coming and we deserve to be in the founding documents of the United States of America. You know, it just blows my mind that we purport to be the most free country in the world. And we don't extend the same legal freedom to everybody. What blows my mind is that we've actually had to spin the other amendments to include women, like the 14th Amendment. And people think, 14th Amendment, you're covered. You know, we had to spin it to include women. And obviously, there's one sure guarantee that women have in the Constitution. It's the 19th Amendment, which is the women's right to vote which we also had to fight for. But because we're talking about the 14th Amendment covering women, well, we wouldn't have needed the 19th Amendment if the 14th Amendment covered women and protected women. And Justice Scalia himself, who is a very conservative judge, said that there are no protections for women in the Constitution. We need to pass this amendment. It's time. And we're the only industrialized nation that does not include women in the Constitution. If we lived in Ethiopia, women would have protection in their Constitution. But because we live here, we do not. It's just infuriating. Um, but with that, let's talk about the book for a minute. So your book, Sorry, Not Sorry, comes out on October 26th. Why was now the right time to write this book? I don't even know that it was. The fact that some years 
There are as many mass shootings as days is fucked up. That 40,000 people every year die in America from guns is fucked up. The reality that the gun industry has so badly manipulated the political system and convinced politicians that these deaths are the cost of their blood money is especially fucked up. And not one of those assholes is apologetic. I went into this book with ideas of wanting to do a story, like a memoir that was reflective of my activism. And then the pandemic hit. And so it really became a book of essays about a year in the life of someone who in an election year was fighting for what she believed in on a big scale but also fighting to keep my children happy and healthy and my parents healthy and my and my husband okay during the most volatile time in my lifetime that this country has ever known not only politically but also just in health and what that meant for the country but also what it meant for me and what it meant to my family it kind of just seemed like now is a Better time than any since I would have the time to really sit down and explore the things in my past that made me who I am today, but also think a little bit about the future and my hopes and dreams for the country and for my family and for my children. It was a daunting task, but it felt like it felt like now is as good a time as any. Now, a couple of months after you started writing the book, you got COVID. And I wonder how that experience changed how you thought, not just about writing the book, but about some of the issues that you discuss in the book, about your activism, about the way you approach the world. Once I got sick with COVID, and I got it in the very, very beginning, Allah and I, my best friend, got it at the same time. And we were joking the other day about how, like, that was the time when you couldn't even find masks. And they were telling you, you didn't need to find masks. They were saying, no, you don't need, you don't need masks. It's fine. But what we didn't know is there was a shortage in masks in our medical community and they needed the masks. And Trump had gotten rid of the stockpile of medical equipment that, that we had. It was, I think, the first time in my life that I didn't have faith in the country's ability to figure out how to keep us all safe. Before we really knew what it was, I had it. I spent much of the late winter sure I was going to die, struggling to breathe. Over the year, my hair began to fall out. I was always exhausted and I experienced a persistent brain fog. I was terrified that I would give it to my parents my husband, my kids, and that if I didn't, some careless jerk who didn't take it seriously would. And I think I before, before the pandemic, I really took for granted that there was always a plan in place about things, especially things as likely to happen as a pandemic, right? Like, how are you not prepared for that? I don't remember a time that I was not fearful of everything after I got sick. And it tainted my faith in a lot of what I thought to be true and real about 
our political system, about our government, about our elected officials having our best interest and our health in, in mind in their legislation, in their policymaking. It never would have occurred to me before this past year that even the worst of our politicians would let thousands and thousands of Americans die because they thought it was politically advantageous. How about even the best of our politicians not having a plan to ensure that people would die? And how about this? This is the thing that's getting me. I don't know about you, but I grew up with this very concrete, real American ideal that said that we will help the global community in times of suffering. And... I don't ever remember a time in my lifetime where that has been less true than during this pandemic. It has felt like we have turned our back on the most vulnerable for corporate pharmaceutical greed and money. And it's been a real awakening for me as a UNICEF ambassador as well to know that UNICEF has the infrastructure in place to get vaccinations in arms, and yet only 3% of the population in Africa has been vaccinated. It is a global pandemic that knows no boundaries. Nowhere is safe until everywhere is safe. And that means that we as a country need to start getting real serious about getting those vaccinations from the tarmac into people's arms. Otherwise, we're not going to see an end to this. It will be an endemic. Now, in the book, you talk about some time that you spent as a UNICEF ambassador in Africa and in other parts of the world. And I wonder how seeing those parts of the world and this, you know, you've been public as an activist since you were a teenager, but you weren't always as public an activist as you are. That's because there was no social media then. Right. The world is totally different. So it's not that you didn't have the ideals, but you didn't have the way to reach people. It wasn't that I wasn't working or doing my activism. It was that my activism was not being publicized because I didn't have a platform to actually empower and enlist and educate people on what I was doing. And so as you were doing that work, and this was in the early 2000s, I wonder how that time overseas shaped the way that you view the country now. In the book, you talk about seeing some parallels between what you saw in Africa and what you see in Flint and what you've seen in Sarajevo and what you've seen in the gun violence epidemic. And I'm curious how that's informed your activism over the years. That was another real hard uh awakening for me. So in 2000, I lived in South Africa for three months and I worked in a township and a children's hospital, which led me to my ambassadorship with UNICEF. And my first field visit was to Angola only two years after the peace treaty was signed for the longest civil war in history. 
even though I had lived in South Africa and I'd seen a lot of heartache and despair and hardship and also a lot of paradox and dichotomy, I don't think I could have ever prepared myself enough for what I witnessed in Angola, Africa, to see what a nation goes through in trying to rebuild infrastructure after a war like that, to walk through an active minefield and sit on my tummy in a chest-protecting vest and with a literal tablespoon Take the dirt and dig up these minefields and this idea that no weapon should outlast a war and to see families being reunited because children were taken away at such a young age, seeing how family separation impacted also infrastructure, seeing the lack of clean water, seeing the walls shelled out with bullet holes. What I know is that fucked up is as fundamental a state of the world as night and day. I know that utopia does not exist, that there is no attainable or universal perfection while we live and breathe. But I know there is better. I know that less fucked up is a state we can live in. It's something I can make happen. Seeing these 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 community centers and these health centers. And at the time, it felt like I was seeing something that was so drastically foreign that I didn't, I sort of disassociated that it was the same globe that we were all living on. And when I came to that conclusion of like, this is happening while I'm at home doing frivolous Hollywood things, like worrying about which shoes to wear. I started to get really frustrated, angry. And the thing that I realized, I think, more than all of that, is this innate ability that children have to dream of a brighter future and a brighter tomorrow. And that's not never more apparent than when you are in a developing nation and you're in a UNICEF van and you pull up to a township or a village and children smiling and and laughing come and run after the truck and marvel at the white woman who is in their village. And it just, it completely shifted my perspective to being, to thinking about these issues in a global sense. And I also went to Kosovo and India six months after the tsunami to see how villages were being rebuilt and communities were coming together to do that. And it was all shocking for very different reasons. But I realized that, like, the problems of these areas are not unique except because of geographical differences. We all have the same issues. We're all looking for clean water. We're all looking for health care. We're all looking for child care, education, women's rights, how to prevent HIV, AIDS, and making that connection and then coming back and working as a political activist some more and realizing this is all going on in this country as well. And that was so shocking to me. And so in the book, I I do make comparisons to 
the clean water wells that I've been able to build in Ethiopia with the Flint water crisis and malnutrition that I saw in pretty much all of, of the areas in Africa that I've been to and, and some areas in India and Kosovo versus the fact that there are 14 million children who go to sleep food insecure every single night in this country. And so it really made me realize how connected this all is and that all of our problems, regardless of whatever corruption is going on within these governments, that people are, are struggling with the same issues. It's just relevant to where they are in the world geographically. You know, as we were when I was getting ready to do this interview, I started to try to list out all of the causes that you fight for. And I realized that just to talk about them in the interview, I'll, it would take the whole thing. And I'm wondering, because we cover, you cover a lot of them in the book, and I'm wondering how you decide to take up a cause. What is it, what is your process that says, this is the thing that speaks to me? Do you just say yes to everything? Because it, sometimes it looks that way, right? It's a very complicated process of just not being able to say no. I feel like if I'm being given the opportunity to do something and to make a difference in people's lives, and what a gift and blessing that is, who am I to say no to that blessing? Who am I to say, um, no, I can't do that. I'm too, I'm too busy or whatever it is. So I do the best that I can. And a lot of times I feel like Maybe I need to pick more of a focus for my activism because I, I sometimes feel like there's so much information in my head that it's hard to keep track. You're going to get it wrong sometimes, if not often. You have to be okay with getting it wrong. Hearing that you got it wrong and committing to doing it better. Being an ally, a true ally means getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. It means acknowledging your own blind spots, diving into your own failings, and owning every last bit of them. It means feeling the failure, feeling the embarrassment. If I was an activist or an advocate that worked for an organization, I would have one focus, and it would be so much, you know, easier. But I didn't get into this to this work for it to be easy. I got into it to be effective and to try to make a difference. And so when I'm presented with these opportunities, I think it's really important that I take them. That's how I feel right now. I don't know if I'm going to feel the same way when I'm older and more exhausted. But as of right now, I feel like it is how I can be as patriotic as humanly possible to my country and also to represent my country in foreign countries with that same love and passion for humanity. Speaking of getting older, you are not yet 50, and yet you have been in, in a very public position for 40 years. And I wonder if in the process of writing this book, you found it difficult to find things to say that people didn't already know about you. Oh, there's so much people don't know about me. There's so much to tell. And I think those, I think now that social media is the way it is, I think people are able to get a really 
pretty good snapshot of who a person is because they're not being molded by the machine of Hollywood or hiding behind a hair and makeup team or a studio who's asking you not to talk about certain issues or political issues. I do think that through social media, people are getting a more complete snapshot of my life had it not existed. And part of that feels a little invasive. But I think it's important to have not really secrets, but to protect certain parts of your life and your being in order to feel like you're still your own person. You know, I want to talk about that a little bit. Your kids, Milo and Bella, I love these kids like they're my own family. I think of them like my nieces and nephews, but they're growing up in a way that I certainly didn't grow up. Like they, they're they growing up in both a very different world, but also in a public way that a lot of kids don't have to do. And you, I think, very intimate things about you as a parent in the book. And I'm wondering how you decide where that line is. What is the thing that allows something to be public that you feel comfortable sharing? And what is the part that is important to keep as your family in this world where everyone can see your kids grow up? It's a good question, but I, I feel like this book, what I was trying to really do was give a snapshot about where we are at this moment in history, but also where we are in this moment as a family. And I think back to my childhood, which a lot of it is documented but I still don't have specific memories of things that I wish that I could remember. You know, moments with my parents as a little girl, what it felt to see my dad come home from work when I was like five years old and he was the light of my life. Like all of those things I wish I had those memories of. So my thought in writing the book was in 20 years from now, people are going to talk about this time in history. They're going to talk about how volatile it was. They're going to talk about the health crisis and the pandemic. What do I want my loved ones to know about this time in history and how I felt and what I was doing to change things? And so the book, I got a lot more intimate, I think, had we not been in a pandemic and I wrote this book. Because it really became about, I don't want these beautiful moments to be lost in the magnitude of the historic era that we are in. And in 20 years from now, when our kids were reading about this time in history, I want them also to have the book. To say, yeah, this, was, this is what the history books were saying, but this is what my mom was feeling, and this is what we did as a family, and this is what she did to try to ease the suffering of people during this time. And so it really became a timestamp. You write in a chapter about Bella, it's, it's basically set up as a letter to her, and you write a bunch of these things that your family did, and you, you talk about you and your husband, David, dancing together. I want you to remember our dogs. You love them so. They were so happy when we were home with them all day. And I want you to remember the day we brought Halo home, his bright blue eyes burning with play and curiosity and love for his new family. I want you to remember me and dad working from home 
and meeting in the kitchen for lunch and a smooch. And the slow dances we did with you between us. I think that it highlights that while the pandemic is a global problem, it's a very personal experience. I think the book really plays that out. And I wonder if you were thinking about that when you were writing. When I was writing, I I kept thinking about those intimate moments, those first intimate moments that we saw in Italy play out with the pandemic and how people would be on their fire escapes in Italy or their balconies playing music. And you would see through windows and see people dancing in the middle of this. And it really, I've always kind of had this weird voyeuristic thing. I don't know, maybe it's because of the way I grew up being so public that I always, like if I'm in a foreign place or if I'm in a, a new state and I'm visiting, I always look in people's windows and I wonder what they're doing in there. I guess in a way it was like a, a peek inside of the windows in our home and giving people a peek inside at what we were doing. If someone was driving by and they were to look into my home, which I think the book allows a look into my home, what they would see. And I mean, it was a hard time. And it was a hard time to look at my kids in the eye and say, it's going to be okay. That's what I did. And that's what I said. But it was hard to do it because I wasn't sure it was going to be okay. I wasn't sure I was going to be okay. I suffered from long haul symptoms for 15, 16 months. I'm just now starting to feel more like myself. I'm still not sure we're going to be okay. And we're two years into this. And I wonder, as going, you discuss so many heavy problems in the book, but it's not all heavy. And there's, there are some humorous stories that you tell. There are some fun personal moments with you and your family. Was it hard to find happiness and humor in the middle of that crisis? I think I am the type of person, and I think my fans will tell you in all of the characters that I play, that I have this, maybe it's a defense mechanism, but this real distinct ability to find humor in in some of the most tragic moments in my entire life and the hardest moments in my life. And I think the chapter on giving birth to Milo is a good example of that because that was a horrible, traumatic experience. Childbirth was really hard for me. Pregnancy was great. I was like the greatest, happiest, fattest pregnant person ever. I loved it so much. (laughs) I gained 55 pounds and I didn't give a shit. And I enjoyed myself. Holy shit, giving birth sucked. I know women are supposed to talk about how magical and empowering the experience was, how it defined motherhood and sacrifice and connection to their babies, but no. I will not pretend I enjoyed it. It fucking hurt. I was torn and bled and nothing went to plan. Years later, I still have a fissure from my post-labor constipation. It was not magical. It was work. And it was pain. I mean, it was worth it, but it was the worst. Labor was really difficult for me. And so the chapter about 
giving birth to Milo, I think, is reflective of my ability to find humor in everything. And those who have followed my career for a long time know that there is something that I bring to every character, you know, whether it be Phoebe or Coralie, which is no matter what is happening, I try to give the character. I, I feel like characters on TV, especially female characters on TV, so often take themselves so seriously. And so I kind of find my place to no matter what is going on, like in Insatiable, when, her, when Coralie's husband was in love with a man and she was trying to decide whether she was going to be in a thruple or leave her husband. I was able to find humor in those moments as an actor. And I do that a lot in my own life, too. And I think it's important. And I think I get that from my mom. Your mom is a very funny person. My mom's a very funny person. I called her, FaceTimed her. She was staying with me because they're moving. I FaceTimed her the other night. Because my brother had texted me that he wanted to bring the baby over, my nephew over, for dinner. Because they now, my brother now lives five minutes away. So I FaceTimed my mom because I was still working. And I was like, Mom, Lukey is coming over. That's my nephew. And she goes, oh, my God. We don't have enough food to eat. She goes, you know what I'm going to do? And she has this New York accent still. She goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go downstairs. I'm going to put on Stevie Wonder. And I'm going I'm to cook whatever you have in the house. And it was like, she cooked a feet. I'm like, mom, he's two. He's two. You could give him like two little chicken fingers and he's happy, like four French fries and two chicken nuggets. And the kid is happy. And she's, she's just funny. My parents have been through so much in their lives. And I don't remember a time that it was tragic enough that we did not at some point giggle at my mom. Well, what I think is remarkable about your family that, that people might not realize is that your parents still show up at your things, right? That when I first met your dad, you were testifying at a shadow hearing in support of the ERA, and he flew to Washington to watch you sit in Congress. And I think that's pretty remarkable that at almost 50 years old, your parents still come to cheer you on. My parents are the best. I mean, it's that thing that they say, your son's your son until he finds a, a wife, your daughter's your daughter for the rest of her life or your life. Yeah. I mean, they come on location with me. They lived in Atlanta with me when I shot Insatiable to take care of the kids. We kind of all move around with a very, it takes a village mentality. I never wanted to be one of those moms that was so into work that my children would sit at the dinner table and not have someone that they loved in the house. And my parents understood that in order for me to continue with my career and my activism, that they were going to have to be around. And so they they are. And my brother, too, we're a very close family. And I think it's part of the reason why I've been able to stay grounded and never doubt the priorities in which order they come in and who I am as a person. Part of who you are as a person that you've been very open about is some of the challenges you've had with mental health, with anxiety in particular. And you talk a lot about that in the book. And I'm wondering how the process of being public and talking about your mental health, which for some reason, a really fucking stupid reason, if there is one, is that it's still taboo. And I'm wondering what the public experience of talking about this, when people tend to target you cruelly online regardless, I wonder what that's like for you. Well, the interesting thing is I don't think I went totally public with my mental health issues until 
people were using terminology to be hurtful to me that involved mental health. Oh, did you forget to take your meds today? Or, oh, you're just a crazy woman or you're hysterical. You know, and it really got me thinking about how much our daily vernacular revolves around words that are hurtful and that are able to use yourself against you. And that really just was confusing. And then also, I felt like if I'm an activist and I'm advocating to easing the suffering of people, then I also have to advocate for mental health. And the difference is, is that with most of the things that I advocate for, I'm an ally. But with mental health, I'm actually advocating for myself. Beyond the political, though, there is so much more. There is life. There is me. I deal with generalized anxiety disorder. There are times when I can't function, when my insides turn to churning water and my breath comes in tight, jagged heaves where my ability to function to do any of my jobs is ripped away by the stunning pressure of its sudden onslaughts. I know it needs to be fixed. I look to others who don't have mental health issues to be the allies. So it's been very interesting to be in that position of like, no, I need people's allyship. And I don't know, I just felt like Once I went public with it, I also felt like it was taking the power away from people who were using it against me. And part of me was always really, people don't know that, but actors, when they get jobs, they have to go in for physicals to get insured. And I always was so worried that a production wasn't going to insure me because there would be a moment where I would wake up and say, I cannot get out of bed. And they would find me out. It felt like such a secret. And going public also felt like I was taking the power away from that ever happening. Now, has that impacted you on set? Have you have now that you've been public about it? Actually, it's impacted me positively because I can actually walk onto a set. I I just did it on The Now, which is a show with Dave Franco and Bill Murray and and me and Daryl Hannah that'll that's gonna be on Roku. It's gonna drop in December. But and the Fairley brothers directed it, but there was a day where I walked onto a set and I was paralyzed in my anxiety. And I was able, because I've been open, to go over to Pete Fairley and say, I'm just I'm okay, but I just want to let you know that I'm feeling some anxiety today. And what that enabled him to do is be like, oh, honey, okay, let us know what you need. You're doing great. But if there's anything you need, if you need to take a break, if you need us to bring in a masseuse, if you need to, he goes, we've all been there. We've all had panic attacks and the people in this on the set are here to support you in whatever way. And it just was such a huge weight that has been lifted off of my shoulders to be honest and truthful about that part of me.
you talk certainly some about your experience in Hollywood, but it is not a book about your life in Hollywood. Was that a difficult choice to make? I'm just not the type of person that ever wants to hurt another person. And so to write a book and be a grown-up, a woman who's almost 50 years old, and to go back into past stories that might be hurtful to people personally, but also impact whether or not they're going to work, felt really wrong to me. And in a way, I think this book is even more intimate than had I written a book about experiences on set that were uncomfortable, because anyone can sort of project those moments. That doesn't make you courageous. What makes you brave is to dive into your own stuff and figure it out and figure out like how you're going to tell this story to people who don't really know you. And so I feel like it's a much more intimate look at who I am and my life than if I had dished about co-stars of the past. And I'm just not a hurtful person. That's just not who I am. You've done so much for candidates over the years. You've done campaigning, you've driven people to the polls. And you talk about in the book an experience you had in Montana where you were stranded with the vote goat. And I wonder if you'd like to share a little bit about that with the listeners. It sounds even ridiculous now. But yeah, so Rob Quist is a candidate that I supported. He It was a special election shortly after Trump was elected. And I felt like I had to do everything I possibly could do to get this to balance the the power. And he was running as a Democrat. So I flew to Montana with my best friend, which, Allah, who I should have known when we were landing because he looked around. He goes, I don't see any buildings. And so I showed up for my I'm going to drive people to the to the polls in in Montana for Rob Quist. And normally they'll give you like a briefing where they'll tell you what to say. And if, if you're brought there in a bipartisan way just to get people to the polls, you don't want to mention certain candidates. And I find great joy in driving people to the polls. I don't know why. There's just something so small town beautiful and romantic about it to me. And if we could just get back to this idea that the big issues are made up by the small issues, I feel like we'd be a lot better off in the country. Anyway, so I go and they're giving me the the, the lowdown. And all of a sudden, I hear this like bell, this like cowbell almost clanking from side to side. And I'm like, what's going on? We are in Montana. What's happening? And someone from the campaign has a goat on a leash. And I was like, oh, my God, look at that goat. Oh, that's so cool. And then I look and they're getting the goat dressed in something. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? They put on this little goat banner that said vote goat. And I was like, oh, that's cl clever. I don't know. That's cool. And then they ha they come over. They walk the goat to over to me and they hand me the goat with the leash and they say, we would like for you to walk around with this vote goat. People love the vote goat. And I'm like, people love the vote goat. And I was a little upset that I was potentially being upstaged by a vote goat. I was like, but I flew here 
like they're not charmed fans. Like what's like what's happening? And so I had to walk around and enlist people to get in the van to go vote. I was on a college campus, by the way, and with this vote goat. And that is the vote goat story that made it in the the book. And let me tell you, people really do love the vote goat. I think it's maybe something every state, every district, and maybe it should be our thing in this country that we bring out the vote goats. Vote goat 2024. Love means you can suggest a national sex strike and your husband doesn't run away screaming. Let me tell you, if you're ever looking to test your relationship, just suggest women withhold sex until political change is achieved. If you don't see a cartoonish cutout in the front door with a trail of footprints disappearing into the horizon, you've maybe got yourself the real thing. Despite all of the difficult things you speak of in this book, the overarching theme, I think, is hope. And I want to know, Alyssa Milano, what gives you hope? The activists who came before me, who fought for things that I am continuing to fight for, that were not attached to the outcome, that knew that they would fight and that they might never see the change that they were fighting for. People like Alice Paul. People like RBG, who I talk about in the book. People like Gloria Steinem, Ellie Smeal. These incredible, ferocious feminists. These women, Angela Davis, who made such impact, but weren't able to really... That are still working towards that change, if they're still alive. And... It's given me a lot of hope as I continue to do this work to realize that there will be a generation after me who will continue to do the work. And that's hopeful to me. It's hopeful to me that the seeds that the women who came before me have planted might come into fruition in my daughter's lifetime. Things like the Equal Rights Amendment, things like prison reform. Things like chipping away at the NRA stronghold in this country, seeing stricter gun laws that protect our children. Nobody should die of a preventable cause, and gun violence, for the most part, is incredibly preventable. So yeah, I think that's what gives me hope. And it also what keeps me in the work. Because, look, if I were attached to the outcome, I would have been very heartbroken many years ago. I don't know if that answers your, your question, but it's that's what keeps me going. Alyssa Milano, you give me hope. And thank you for all you do. I love you dearly and for being part of the podcast. I love you. Thank you. What I want to say more than anything to you, yes, specifically you holding this book, is thank you. Thank you for all you do for me for fighting the trolls in my comments, for watching the shows, for reading my books, and showing up at my book signings, some of you even coming from overseas, for sharing your successes with me and your challenges, for always showing up when I need you, for giving me the gift of freedom to be the person that I want to be. 
and for working with me to make life better. You are a piece of magic in my world. As a writer myself, I know that there is so much that goes into a book that never makes it onto the page. The hours spent awake at night with ideas circling in your head, the meetings with editors, marketers, and media, things which are so important to the writer but end up cut from the book to make a final, better product. It's a labor of years, and it ends with a writer bearing their soul to the public and hoping that it's well-received. Now, I know it's hard to believe, but the holiday shopping season is just about upon us. I hope this year you'll be sure to add books to your shopping list. Our local independent bookstores are such important hubs in our communities, and the money you spend in these stores is an investment in the future of our neighborhoods. When I was a young man, I worked for a small chain of bookstores whose motto was dedicated to the fine art of browsing. I always loved that line. Browsing is a fine art, and it's one that's in danger of dying in a digital age. I sure hope that doesn't happen. Spending time finding the right book for a young person can inspire a lifetime of curiosity and growth. Finding the right book for us older folks can bring edification, entertainment, and a new understanding of challenges facing our world. At the same time, you're telling the writers who gave so much of themselves to put words on paper that their work matters. Everybody wins. So go out, be an artist, and browse your local independent bookstore this winter. You'll be glad you did. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.